Hi. So these are some thoughts on dramatic writing and specifically writing for the screen, although the roots of dramatic writing uh, are not unique to the screen. I'm going to start with some quotes from Andrei Tarkovsky, the Russian filmmaker, in his beautiful book, Sculpting in Time. So I'll start with some of those quotes, and then I'll kind of go off from there. Uh, so here's uh, the beginning, those quotes. Not all prose can be transferred to the screen. Some works have a wholeness and are endowed with a precise and original literary image. Characters are drawn in unfathomable depths. The composition has an extraordinary capacity for enchantment, and the book is indivisible. Through the pages comes the astonishing, unique personality of the author. Books like that are masterpieces, and only someone who is actually indifferent both to fine prose and to the cinema can conceive the urge to screen them. It is all the more important to emphasize this point now, when the time has come for literature to be separated once and for all from cinema. Other prose works are made by ideas, by clarity and firmness of structure, by originality of theme. Such writing seems not to be concerned with the aesthetic development of the thought it contains. All this made it easier for me to see the work as prose that could readily be screened. Screening might give it that aesthetic intensity of feeling which would transform the idea of the story into a truth endorsed by life. I'm going to uh, end quote here for a moment to say that I think this is a crucial distinction in thinking about writing for the screen or writing something that will eventually be screened. Screening as a verb. Screening gives it that aesthetic intensity of feeling that transforms the idea of a story into a truth. So, screening something, making it cinema, gives it a kind of radiance and sort of hyper, I would call it a hyper intensity of emotion and all of that comes from transforming the idea of a story into truth. I think this is a crucial, crucial concept and um, one that I think is worth kind of repeating and um, kind of using as a guide.
The other, uh, so I'm just going to jump to a couple of more quotes from Tarkovsky. Uh, before uh, moving on to other things. And this is a, a discussion that Tarkovsky, who was a writer and director, uh, interestingly, at the start of his book, Sculpting in Time, uh, has a discussion with himself <laughs> about um, the different roles that a director and writer take in making a film. Uh, and even though he's wearing both hats in his work, uh, sometimes in this book he articulates uh, these both sides of his artistic brain. Uh, and so I'm just going to jump to this section. Whenever scriptwriter and director are not the same person, we shall witness an insoluble contradiction. That is, of course, if they are artists of integrity. Here we come up against the question of how far a director is entitled to be a screen writer. Some would categorically deny him the right ever to engage in script writing at all. Directors given to writing scenarios tend to be sharply criticized, even though it is obvious enough that some writers feel themselves to be further from the cinema than film directors. The implication of such an attitude is somewhat bizarre. All writers are entitled to write screenplays, but no director is. Absurd. But let's return to our theme, Tarkovsky says. I find poetic links, the logic of poetry in cinema extraordinarily pleasing. They seem to me perfectly appropriate to the potential of cinema as the most truthful and poetic of art forms. Certainly I am more at home with them than with traditional theatrical writing which links images through the linear, rigidly logical development of the plot that sort of fossilly correct way of linking events usually involves arbitrarily forcing them into sequence in obedience to some abstract notion of order. And even when this is not so, even when the plot is governed by the characters, one finds that the links which hold it together rest on a facile interpretation of life's complexities. But film material can be joined together in another way, which works above all to lay open the logic of a person's thought. I think this is a crucial distinction, but one I think that if we are to think about writing for the stage can be reapplied to writing for the stage. And one of the things that I would uh, I'm not arguing with Tarkovsky, uh, but what I'm saying is that what Tarkovsky opens up in thinking about cinema as a poetic form, at the birth of cinema and its influence, and it's still a very new form uh, historically, is that I think 
as creatures that have grown up watching film and living in a world where film exists. Dream logic and, uh, and material joined together by the logic of a person's thought has that one could say begins in cinema, evoking poetry, has retranslated itself into the act of writing theater, uh, especially in the late 20th century and now into the 21st. Uh, so I just want to lay that down as a concept because I think that Tarkovsky here in Sculpting in Time is talking about sort of radical difference between writing for screen and thinking about the screen as a poetic medium and writing for the stage uh, and thinking about it as not a poetic medium. And what I would argue here is that because of the influence of cinema, in fact, the stage can be and has become in the hands of some artists, not all artists, uh, has become a poetic medium. So I just want to throw that out there. Um, and I'm just going to continue with a couple more quotes from uh, Tarkovsky because I think that he opens us up to thinking uh, in such a beautiful way about form. So I'll, I'll look at this section again. Film material can be joined together in another way, which works above all, above all, to lay open the logic of a person's thought. This is the rationale that will dictate the sequence of events and the editing which forms them into a whole. The birth and development of thought are subject to laws of their own and sometimes demand forms of expression which are quite different from the patterns of logical speculation. In my view, poetic reasoning is closer to the laws by which thought develops and thus to life itself than is the logic of traditional dramas. And yet it is the methods of classical drama, character, plot, circumstance, and so forth, which have been regarded as the only models and which for years have defined the form in which dramatic conflict is expressed. Through poetic connections, however, feeling is heightened and the spectator is made more active. The spectator becomes a participant in the process of discovering life, unsupported by ready-made deductions from the plot or pointers by the author. The spectator has at their disposal only what helps to penetrate the deeper meaning of the complex phenomena represented in front of them. Complexities of thought 
and poetic visions of the world do not have to be thrust into the framework of the patently obvious. The usual logic, that of linear sequentiality, is uncomfortably like the proof of a geometry theorem. As a method, it is incomparably less fruitful artistically than the possibilities opened up by associative linking, which allows for an effective as well as a rational appraisal. It possesses an inner power which is concentrated within the image and comes across to the audience in the form of feelings, inducing tension in direct response to the author's narrative logic. There is another advantage in this approach. The method by whereby the artist obliges the audience to build the separate parts into a whole and to think on is the only one that puts the audience on a par with the artist in their perception of the film. And indeed, from the point of view of mutual respect, only that kind of reciprocity is worthy of artistic practice. So I'm just going to end quote for a moment here from Tarkovsky. What he's saying, which I think is uh, beautiful and, and very much something that needs to be, uh, you need to bear in mind, uh, how he's teasing out the ideas around what people call conventional structure governed by logic, a linear progression of some kind, or a sequence that evokes something that will be linear, or that started linear and then has been reconstructed, for example. Uh, is ordered by the author uh, in such a way that that order in and of itself becomes, and this is sort of my interpretation of what Tarkovsky is saying, becomes uh, weirdly, I think, dictatorial, right? So the storytelling is dictating, is telling the audience what to feel, is, is governing the perception uh, of what's happening, uh, and is, and I think this is a, fair interpretation of what Tarkovsky means here, which to say it's, it's also superior to the audience, right? So where a conventional story positions itself as superior to the audience, uh, it knows more than the audience does. It is above the audience. And what Tarkovsky is saying by the notion of crafting something more associatively, more uh, around the idea of the logic of a thought, or a better way of saying this, I think, um, and maybe in this translation from the Russian, uh, 
the translator has chosen the word thought, and I would say that the word is probably more consciousness, that writing, as we all know, is an act of consciousness, that it's an articulation of consciousness. And I think what Tarkovsky is saying about cinema and writing for cinema and screening a story, which I think is a fascinating concept, you're screening a story like putting it under a silk screen in a textile uh, operation, is that it's kind of going through your brain. So it's almost a map of consciousness and that that's what's being reflected on the screen. Uh, and that associative way of building puts the audience on equal footing with the material, meaning that the audience is there to interpret the work. Uh, the work is not telling you how to interpret it. Right? So I'll repeat that. The audience is there to interpret the work. The work is not there merely, merely for the audience to interpret it, which is a more dictatorial approach to thinking about the construction of a story event or story-related event uh, for film. And again, I would argue back that this is also possible in live art. Uh, but I think often this approach is not uh, used. I'm just going to circle back here a little bit to Tarkovsky, just because I think that the work, Sculpting in Time, I think is, a, is an essential book uh, for, for writing, uh, dramatic writing. Uh, and so here Tarkovsky sort of codifies what he means by poetry, which I think is also useful. When I speak of poetry, I am not thinking of it as a genre. Poetry is an awareness of the world, a particular way of relating to reality. So poetry becomes a philosophy to guide a person throughout their life. Without perception, or without such perception, even a work that purports to be true to life will seem artificially uniform and simplistic. An artist may achieve an outward illusion, a lifelike effect, but that is not at all the same as examining life beneath the surface. So I'm continuing here with Tarkovsky. I think, in fact, that unless there is an organic link between the subjective impressions of the author and the objective representation of reality, the author will not achieve an even superficial credibility, let alone authenticity and inner truth. So I'm going to repeat this section and kind of talk through it a little bit. So I think what he's saying is absolutely true, for one thing. Um, work that purports to be true to life, that on the outward, that looking at it on the surface feels like it's perfectly photographically true, lifelike, believable, relatable, right? That's the term. May indeed not be once you start looking under the surface. 
right? It may, it may actually be incredibly artificial and just have a lifelike appearance, right? And so what Tarkovsky uh, proposes here is that unless the work has something going on underneath, right? Unless there's a link between the subjective impressions of the author and this representation of reality that's being enacted through art, there will not be authenticity and inner truth. So I think this, this actually, I'm going to stop here just for a quick second, which is to say that it opens up uh, this area of authenticity that I think sometimes gets um, mistaken in film writing. And, and I, again, I, I, would, I would put theater and film on a continuum. Um, I know that Tarkovsky is specifically writing about film. But I feel like because theater led to film, there's always going to be a symbiotic relationship between those forms. You know, there was theater, there was the camera, and then there was movies, right? And so those things kind of come together. And they all uh, use aspects of each other. Uh, you know, film incorporates aspects of the, the of theater, of dramatic writing from the ancient times, the idea of an actor, the idea of, a the idea of something being performed, the idea of behavior being examined, the idea of some sort of something that resembles a plot of some kind. Um, the invention of the camera uh, changes theater uh, and makes it more, um, you have this uh, interesting thing that happens in, uh, once the camera is invented and you know not only when it's invented but also when it becomes in vogue Okay, uh, where suddenly theater starts to imitate the photograph, right? So before, you know, theater was its own thing and people understood how, it, you know, I would say most people understood how it worked in the sense that we all understand it's a game of pretend. We all understand that it's a, it's a representation of, of, many kinds of realities that are happening in theater. The fascinating thing about theater is that there's always a double consciousness at work, the actor playing a role, that awareness of the, of, the perform, of the audience knowing that it's an actor playing a role. There's kind of like a shared experience uh, of some kind. And the stories can be, if there are stories, events, excuse me, they can be, uh, Fantastical, they can be romantic, they can be tragic, they can be comedic, et cetera, right? So, so the, the, the kinds of stories being told are, are vast uh, in the theater. And of course, the essential item, the essential elements in the theater piece are space and how you're using space and how you're using time. At the invention of the camera, you have time being frozen. So this changes. So theater makers, and storytellers and theater making suddenly find themselves a little bit thrown by the notion that you can arrest time. You can stop it, you can photograph it, um, and it's there forever. So suddenly you have this notion of uh, 
the fixed image, which theater is not about. Theater is about the unfixed image. It's about multiplicity. But camera, camera decides that the image is fixed. Uh, it's fixed by the photographer, um, and it's framed. So suddenly, ideas around their representation of reality change, filters into theater, then you get naturalism, then you get realism, right? These things are kind of codependent. Um, by the time cinema happens, which is an extension, right? It's a moving image. The idea of the moving image occurs. Suddenly, the idea of the moving image changes everything yet again because it has elements of the photographic in the sense that it, you know, literally uh, there's a camera and it's pointing out something. <laughs> um, so it's photographing something, but it's also in motion, just like theater is. So cinema exists in a in this in the in-between space. I know it's its own form, but historically exists in, in an in-between space between theater and, and photography and the, you know, the beginnings of photography. Uh, and it's sort of an expansion of, if we think about not uh, pure cinema, but I'm, I'm certainly thinking about uh, what we think of as movies and TV and so forth. Uh, and I think what it's ironic about how people separate movies and TV uh, and streaming is that it's kind of all the same thing. I mean, in the sense that it's screenwriting, right? And so... Um, just because it's called TV doesn't mean it's not for the screen because it is. Um, and, uh, and just because it's streaming somewhere doesn't mean it's not being screened, right? So screenwriting encompasses anything that's being screened. Um, and this circles back to Tarkovsky looking at, uh, how do you screen a story? How do you screen thought? Because that's what you're screening. You're screening the map of thought. You're screaming, you're screening, you're screening consciousness. And consciousness is in motion. So I think this is why my, you know, my sort of take on it is that in the screening of consciousness, there is a relationship between that and actually structuring something for the stage that is also screening consciousness, which the photograph can't do, cannot do because the photograph is fixed. It's fixed time. It's arrested time. Uh, cinema, cinema, of course, fixes time. Once it's once the film is shot and it's edited, it's fixing time. But it has inside of it the illusion of motion and editing in film is centrally about motion. So the rhythm and tempo of editing, which is actually what makes a movie. How do you go from one cut, one frame to the next frame, from one cut to the next cut, right? Has to do with, um, that's where the story happens really. Um, this image next to that image, next to that image is telling a story. Like the old flip books, uh, and in the early days of the moving image. Uh, I'm going to circle back. Uh, oh, and what I'll say around this, because I started with this, with the idea of authenticity, is that um, what is rendered authentic is not the superficial, lifelike thing 
that's just surface authenticity. What is actually authentic is something that's underneath, um, that you know is speaking to a unified. And here I'm interpreting Tarkovsky, Tarkovsky, but a unified approach to the subjective consciousness of the filmmaker, author, and the consciousness of the film and what results being the art object that becomes the film. That is actually where the truth exists and the authenticity exists. And you'll see this in the work of, there's a, a tremendously wonderful filmmaker and visual artist and a multi-talented artist uh, whose work, uh, of which I'm very fond, um, from the early days of new queer cinema, named Derek Jarman. Uh, in Jarman's work, and it's kind of like a further exploration of this idea of working through consciousness. And in fact, you know, his work was, uh, Jarman's work was very, was seeking a kind of authenticity um, through, art, through artifice, but through a kind of different way of thinking about what film could do and what that collaboration artistically could be. A very, a very private vision, but a private vision made public. And, and I think his last film uh, is, is, he was, uh, Derek Jarman had AIDS and um, uh, died of complications from AIDS and went blind. And his last film um, was uh, a, a kind of um, uh, goodbye to cinema. Uh, and it's a film called Blue, and it's uh, a, a blue screen, but a kind of very dark blue screen, and a voiceover. And it runs about, oh, I'm trying to remember, I think it runs about an hour or so. Uh, and it's it's Jarman himself sort of speaking very intimately about uh, his deterioration, physical deterioration. He was very ill when he made Blue. Um, about consciousness, about time, about mortality, um, about the color blue itself, uh, just fascinating. Its textures and its ambiance and its atmosphere. Uh, and it's a stunning piece of cinema. You're, you're, what it asks of the viewer, and it's fascinating. It's like an audio drama but you're asked to kind of sit contemplating, meditating upon a state of blueness throughout the duration of the film. And it's hypnotic um, and very daring, uh, very daring. I mean, that's, that's as hard as, as, as pure as it gets in a way, but uh, in terms of seeking an inner truth, I'm gonna circle back around to Tarkovsky uh, here. You can play a scene with documentary precision, dress the characters correctly to the point of naturalism, have all the details exactly like real life, and the picture that emerges in consequence will still be nowhere near reality. It will seem utterly artificial, that is, not faithful to life, even though artificial 
artificiality was precisely what the author was trying to avoid. Curiously enough, the label artificial is applied in art to what unquestionably belongs to our ordinary, everyday perception of reality. The explanation that the pattern of life is far more poetic than it is sometimes represented by the determined advocates of naturalism. So much so, so much, after all, remains in our thoughts and hearts as unrealized suggestion. Instead of attempting to capture these nuances, most unpretentious, quote, true-to-life films not only ignore them, but make a point of using sharp, overstated images, which at best can only make the picture seem far-fetched. And I am all for cinema being as close as possible to life, even if on occasion we have failed to see how beautiful life really is. I'll just continue a little bit uh, here, sort of engaging with Tchaikovsky before I move on. Uh, sort of, he, he posits something interesting, which I think has become true um, since he wrote this many years ago. Um, but I, I still think it's provocative what he says. Uh, he's talking here about the separation between cinema and literature. Um, and so let's, I'm just going to look at this quote. Uh, cinema still retains some principles proper to other art forms on which directors often base themselves when making a film. Uh, gradually, these principles have come to act as a break on cinema, like a, a break in a car, break on cinema, as an obstacle to its realizing its own character. And one result is that cinema then loses something of its capacity for incarnating reality directly and by its own means as opposed to transmuting life with the help of literature, painting, or theater. This can be seen, for instance, in the influence brought to bear on cinema by the visual arts when attempts were made to transfer this or that canvas to the screen. For the most part, isolated principles are transposed, and whether these are of composition or of color, the artistic realization will not be that of the original, independent creation. It can only be derivative. Trying to adapt the features of other art forms to the screen will always deprive the film of what is distinctly cinematic and make it harder to handle the material in a way that makes use of the powerful resources of cinema as an art in its own right. Methods established by the older art forms interpose themselves and prevents life from being recreated in the cinema as a person feels it and sees it, in other words, authentically.
And I'll just jump forward here to some, this is sort of reiterating some ideas around uh, uh, documentary reality, documentary, documentary, sorry, and reality that, um, I should say not reality, but representations of reality that Tarkovsky uh, has some, some issues with uh, in other kinds of films. Um, and here's the quote, um, a vast number of cliches and commonplaces nurtured by centuries of theater have unfortunately also found a resting place in cinema. I commented earlier on drama and the logic of film narrative to be more specific and to clarify exactly what I mean. It's worth looking for a moment at the concept of the mise-en-scene. The mise-en-scene is the, the overall dramatic situation because I think it is in the handling of the mise-en-scene that an arid, formal approach to the problem of expression and expressiveness is most obvious. And if we set ourselves the task of comparing mise-en-scene in film and the vision of the writer, a few examples will be sufficient to show how formalism affects the film set. People tend to think that an effective mise-en-scene is simply one that expresses the idea, the point of the scene and its subtext. That is supposed to ensure that the scene will be given the depth that the meaning requires. Such an attitude is simplistic. It has given rise to a good many irrelevant conventions, which do violence to the living texture of the artistic image. As we know, mise-en-scene is a design made up of the disposition of the actors in relation to one another and to the setting. In real life, we can be struck by the way an episode takes on a mise-en-scene when it makes for the utmost expressiveness. The incongruity of the composition in relationship to what is happening. It is in fact the absurdity of the mise-en-scene that catches our imagination not its con not its uh, not the fact that it is congruous, but it's incongruous is what um, Tarkovsky is proposing. The absurdity of the mise-en-scene is what catches our imagination, but this absurdity is only apparent. It covers something of great significance, which gives the mise-en-scene quality of absolute conviction, which makes us believe in the event. The point is that it is not it is no good bypassing the difficulties and bringing everything down to a simplistic level. Therefore, it is crucial that mise-en-scene, rather than illustrating some idea, should follow life, the personalities of the characters and their psychological state. Its purpose must not be reduced to elaborating on the meaning of a conversation or action. Its function is to startle us with the authenticity of the actions and the beauty and depths of the artistic images, not by obtrusive illustration of their meaning. As is so often the case, undue emphasis on ideas can only restrict the spectator's imagination, forming a kind of, and I love this phrase, a kind of thought ceiling beyond which there yawns a vacuum. It doesn't safeguard the frontiers of thought. It simply makes it harder to penetrate into its depths. And here it goes into some examples. Huh. Examples are not hard to find. One only has to think of the endless fences, railings, lattices that separate lovers. Another heavy-handed variation 
is a monumental, clanging panorama of a huge building site, the mission of which is to bring some erring egotist back to his senses and imbue him with a love of labor and the working class. No mise-en-scene has the right to be repeated, just as no two personalities are ever the same. As soon as a mise-en-scene turns into a sign, a cliché, a concept, no matter how original, then the whole thing, character, situation, psychology, become schematic and false. So, a pretty radical statement by Tarkovsky, and you would not be surprised if you've ever seen his movies. Um, but he's getting at something very powerful here, uh, which I think is is hopefully uh, worth aspiring to, uh, which is that um, there are, you know, we talk in writing, speaking of literature right now, but we're talking in literature, we speak so often of avoiding the cliche, you know, uh, what has become cliche or what has become stereotyped, um, you know, the lovers separated by the fence and, you know, oh, they're across the barrier, uh, you know, it's an easy image, right? It's, it's kind of like, it has become, as Tarkovsky says, a sign, like a stop sign. Um, it has the power of a stop sign, um, but not the depth of a stop sign, right? There's no depth to a stop sign. It's merely a sign. It's sort of telling you what it is. Um, and I think what Tarkovsky is, is trying to kind of fight against and rescue, uh, as he, you know, beautifully puts in his uh, book uh, around what makes cinema unique, uh, what makes screening thought a unique experiment in, a, in its own art form, not co a codependent art form, although, you know, I think it's... So my, again, my argument with Tarkovsky is that I think that there's always going to be a codependency because of how cinema was born, right? It came out of these other traditions. Um, and it's still a super young art form, you know? So I think that in a way it's going to take a very long time for cinema to ever be autonomous. I think what's, the one thing I will say is that I think what's happened to cinema, and in here I include TV, you know, and other, you know, streaming, you know, stories that are screened, um, is that actually, I think, you know, everybody talks about we're in a golden age of, um, of screening, you know, the golden age of TV streaming, uh, golden age in the sense that there's a lot of work, right? Uh, and there are, there's some strong, very strong work happening and it's accessible. So that's all great. Um, but actually I think in terms of form, uh, with very rare exceptions. Um, in some ways, it's a retrograde age. <laughs> um, I would argue that, that you know, in effect, in effect um, some of the earlier experiments, let's say in television, when, when they had fewer resources, uh, were actually more interesting. Um, because um, there was, I think, the idea of thinking about the power of the image, right? Um, Paul Schrader, who's, a, I know, a, a somewhat controversial filmmaker, um, 
uh, certainly knows what he's talking about, um, but as a personality, I think is controversial. But uh, one of the things he was talking about in a lecture was about how basically people, I mean, a lot of writers and uh, storytellers for screen have forgotten that the image is a powerful thing, that that's what you're writing. Um, and that what has happened is that you see this a lot in a lot of the work that streams, especially, especially streaming work, because there's so much of it. Uh, and it's almost become, well, it has become, I shouldn't say almost, it has become an assembly line, um, is that it sort of all looks the same, <laughs> really, in a way, like depending, unless it's coming from, from, from another tradition, cinematically, it sort of all looks the same. There's like very little thought uh, to, to why the camera is placed here and what is the power of that image. In fact, um, you know, one series looks like another series, looks like another series. You know, the, some of the same conventions start to appear. So they're, so in a sense, and I'm sort of circling back here to what Tarkovsky is talking about in terms of the mise-en-scene, is that the mise-en-scene, the sort of de the depiction of the dramatic situation has become cliched, right? Because it's, it, it, has, it has lost its power and its meaning. Uh, and, and what Tarkovsky was advocating when he wrote Sculpting in Time, and I still think it's an, an, maybe even more valid now, is that we have to rescue, we have to rescue screenwriting to relocate the power of the image and to understand that that's actually what's being transmitted. Uh, yeah. So I'm just going to circle back now to some other things um, around screenwriting that I think are worth this is sort of an interesting moment so uh, in Sculpting in Time where Tarkovsky talks about and I think it's sort of still circling around this idea of like what makes film poetry, um, and here he starts talking about a memory, which I think is absolutely true, um, in that films are a dream, are dream logic, and they're, they're kind of governed by, or can be governed by a sense of that we're floating through memories. But that's sort of like, at its best, I think that's what films really do well. Uh, so this is something where he was talking about making a film, but I'm going to just pull some quotes from here that I think are worth uh, looking at. Generally, people's memories are precious to them. It is no accident, accident that they are colored by poetry. The most beautiful memories are those of childhood, often, though not exclusively. Of course, memory has to be worked upon before it can become the basis of an artistic reconstruction of the past. This is crucial. It's not just a reconstruction of the past, but an, but, but an artistic 
reconstruction of the past. And here it is important not to lose the particular emotional atmosphere without which a memory evoked in every detail merely gives rise to a bitter feeling of disappointment. There's an enormous difference, after all, between the way you remember the house in which you were born and which you haven't seen for years, and the actual site of the house after a prolonged absence. Usually, the poetry of memory is destroyed by confrontation with its origin. It occurred to me then that from these properties of memory, a new working principle could be developed on which an extraordinarily interesting film might be built. Outwardly, the pattern of events of the hero's actions and behavior would be disturbed. It would be the story of the hero's thoughts, memories, and dreams. And then, without his appearing at all, in this case there's a male uh, hero, at least in the accepted traditional sense of a film, it would be possible to achieve something highly significant, the expression portrayal of the hero's individual personality and the revelation of his interior world. Somewhere here there is an echo of the image of the lyrical hero incarnate in literature and, of course, in poetry. He is absent from view, but what he thinks, how he thinks, and what he thinks about build up a graphic and clearly defined picture of him. This way to poetic logic is fraught with adversity. Opposition awaits you at every turn, despite the fact that the principle in question is quite as legitimate as that of the logic of literature or dramaturgy. It is simply that a different component becomes the main element in the construction. One is reminded here of the sad dictum of Hermann Hesse, a poet is something you are allowed to be, not allowed to become. How true. There are aspects of human life that can only be faithfully represented through poetry. But this is where directors very often try to use clumsy, conventional gimmicks instead of poetic logic. I'm thinking of the illusionism and extraordinary effects involved in dreams, memories, and fantasies. Too often, film dreams are made into a collection of old-fashioned film tricks and cease to be a phenomenon of life. Uh, and in this... Uh, first section of the book, which is called Beginning. Um, he talks about um, making a film called uh, Yvonne's Childhood, sort of illustrates some of his um, wrestling with this. Um, I'm just going to jump to something from the second chapter, and then I'll conclude for a while. Um, These are some central questions that Tarkovsky asks in chapter two. Why does art exist? Who needs it? Indeed, does anybody need it? These are questions asked not only by the poet, but also by anyone who appreciates art. 
or in that current expression, the consumer. Many ask themselves that question, and anyone connected with art gives their own answer. Pushkin believed the poet had the gift of prophecy. Locke said that the poet creates harmony out of chaos. Every artist is ruled by their own laws, but these are by no means, excuse me, compulsory for anyone else. In any case, it is perfectly clear that the goal for all art, unless of course it is aimed at the consumer, like a commodity, is to explain to the artist himself and to those around him what man lives for, what is the meaning of existence, to explain to people the reason for their appearance on this planet, or if not to explain, at least to pose the question. To start with the most general consideration, it is worth saying that the indisputably functional role of art lies in the idea of knowing, where the effect is expressed as shock, as catharsis. Art, like science, is a means of assimilating the world, an instrument for knowing it in the course of your journey toward what is called absolute truth. Art could be said to be a symbol of the universe, being linked with that absolute spiritual truth which is hidden from us in our pragmatic activities. Art addresses everybody in the hope of making an impression, above all of being felt, of being the cause of an emotional trauma and being accepted, of winning people not by rational argument, but through the spiritual energy with, with, which, with which the artist has charged the work. And the preparatory discipline it demands is not a scientific education, but a spiritual lesson. Art is born and takes hold wherever there is a timeless and insatiable longing for the spiritual, for the ideal, that longing which draws people to art. Artistic creation does not assert itself through personality. It serves another, higher, communal idea. And here, uh, when I speak of the aspiration towards the beautiful, of the ideal as the ultimate aim of art, which grows from a yearning for that ideal, I am not for a moment suggesting that art should shun the dirt of the world. On the contrary, the artistic image is always a metonym, for one thing is substituted for another, the smaller for the greater. To tell what, what is living, the artist uses something dead. To speak of the infinite, he shows the infinite. Substitution. The infinite cannot be made into matter, but it is possible to create an illusion of the infinite, the image. Hideousness and beauty are contained within each other. This prodigious paradox, in all its absurdity, leavens life itself, and in art makes that wholeness in which harmony and tension are unified. Okay, I'll stop there from sculpting in time, so that's a lot. Um, 
to say that, you know, obviously what, what Tarkovsky is advocating for, rightly so, I think, um, is that, because I think that, and I think that one of the reasons he says this is because I think some of what he says earlier could be misunderstood, right? So he's talking about uh, cinema as being a, a map of consciousness, right? A, a, a sort of um, the progression of thought is, is, is what a film is, a progression of a series of thoughts or one long thought, um, as I'd like to call it. Um, and of course, that that can lead to thinking about it as a kind of solipsistic, um, idiosyncratic, uh, narcissistic um, expression uh, of an individual artist. In other words, a kind of the personality of the artist inserting themselves on the work. But what Tarkovsky is saying is that that's not what he means at all. Um, that in this map of consciousness, something else happens, right? Which is a yearning for some sort of communal experience for some sort of reaching out, you know, to the larger world, uh, a sense of connection, you know, on a very basic level, uh, but also a connection to the spheres. So not only a connection to other humans, but also a connection to the cosmos. And that, that actually, that yearning is what makes it uh, a kind of pure pure expression of the artist facing the screen, kind of interpreting something, and then transmitting that to a potential viewer in the case of film, because you don't know who your audience is going to be. So to your potential viewer, you are transmitting something um, that, that is coming from a deep spiritual yearning. Um, and of course, not all films do this, right? There, there are a lot of films that fall into another category, and and he is right to to say that you know some films are made as commodities, and they're just meant to be consumed. They're they're like things on a shelf, um, and you know Tchaikovsky was not interested in in making things for a shelf that would be consumed, you know, that would kind of be bought and sold. I mean, he was interested in the other function of art. Uh, especially in the post-industrial age, of of serving another purpose, a much more spiritual purpose uh, in the world, and um, one that perhaps would risk, which should risk, I should say, you know, interpreting him, but should risk, and I believe this myself, should risk not being consumed. In other words, not being seen as something that is only there for consumption, um, but actually can deliver something much more powerful, uh, an expression of the soul, uh, if you believe in souls, or something akin to a soul in writing. Um, and I do think that writing for the screen is writing. Um, it, is a, it is a different kind of writing, uh, but it is writing. Um, you know, is it literature? It's a kind of literature. It's visual literature. Uh, and I think that, you know, we're, we're far enough into the 21st century, though sometimes it doesn't feel that way. We're far enough into the 21st century to, to understand that there, 
that visual literature does exist and that it has its own methods, um, but can also have its own um, ways of connecting uh, to an audience, uh, a potential audience, as a, a kind of soul connection between the work uh, and the audience. And I'm gonna. I'm just gonna end with another quote from Perkowski, and then call it a call it a call it an end here. Um, uh, yes, I love this book is uh, necessary reading. Um, so the great function of art is communication, as I've been saying. Since mutual understanding is a force to unite people, and the spirit of communion is one of the most important aspects of artistic creativity. Works of art, unlike those of science, have no practical goals in any material sense. Art is a meta-language with the help of which people try to communicate with one another to impart information about themselves and assimilate the experience of others. It is not, this, has, um, this has to do not with practical advantage, but with realizing the idea of love, the meaning of which is in sacrifice the very antithesis of pragmatisms. I simply cannot believe that an artist can ever work only for the sake of self-expression. Self-expression is meaningless unless it meets with a response. For the sake of creating a spiritual bond with others, it can only be an agonizing process, one that involves no practical gain. Ultimately, it is an act of sacrifice, but surely it cannot be worth the effort merely for the sake of hearing one's own echo. And, uh, and I think that this is, you know, what... Again, what um, Tarkovsky is getting at, of course, is that in this notion of self-expression, you're not just talking to yourself, you're talking to other people, right? So the act of communion, the conversation that the film script is having with the potential audience uh, is crucial to the experience. And, and I would certainly extend that uh, especially because I, you know, I personally um, started in theater and certainly consider it my my first love. Um, is that I think that theater can also occupy that space, um, although it doesn't always, um, but that it is a space of a spiritual communion. Uh, with an audience, and that one that is mysterious, you know. So, so some. What are the, some of the lessons that Tarkovsky is giving us? And of course, I urge you to read the book entirely. Um, sculpting in time. If you're writing, if you're making, writing for film, if you're screening, if you're writing, and I think also if you're writing for theater, the book applies 
because what he's talking about is that you're making moving sculptures and, and you're working with space and time and in film especially you're working with time um, which is I think one of the reasons um, when I was thinking about Richard Linklater's work I'm not sure that people would put Linklater and Tarkovsky on the same continuum necessarily but I think that there is a relationship between someone like Linklater who is centrally obsessed with time as a filmmaker um, and a lot of his films the use of the long take and the present continuous time as a way of trusting and letting a, letting an audience live with and experience the moment is I think Linklater's way of re-inviting the audience potentially into a spiritual communion with the experience of the film um, kind of getting out of get, getting out of the way in a sense and that getting out of the way means some, usually not showing his hand as a filmmaker, even though he's making choices, um, but making it seem as if it's invisible. Um, that means that an audience could just sort of walk in, right? That's the invitation of Linklater's work often, that we just walk in, just kind of hang out and drop in with his characters and his people. But what happens inside, that, inside of that process uh, is something much more irreducible, uh, certainly very difficult to describe, and it is an experience of being that is being communicated in his work, uh, work that uh, is constantly cutting, cutting up you know, constantly cutting, um, is demanding a different kind of experience from an audience. Um, but it's also asking the audience to see, see the director, see the director at all times. Um, that can be a different kind of conversation with an audience, different kind of communion. Uh, it's a trickier one, I think, to pull off. Uh, because it can feel like, you know, it's uh, what I'll say about that is that it sort of is like um, when you hear somebody do like a great guitar solo, right? And you're admiring how virtuosic they are. Oh my God, that solo was amazing, right? And you sort of forget the song that was being played. <laughs> Um, I think that that's, I mean, that, that's probably like a good analogy to think about what Tarkovsky is, is referring to in a sense. It's like, don't write the great guitar solo, write the great song, right? And the great song is a kind of union of parts. All the parts are involved. Everyone's playing. Um, and the guitar solo is, is an element inside of that song. But it's, it's not the song. Um, the song is what communicates the totality of the experience, the sense of being in space and time. The poetry of that logic 
as opposed to the poetry of the more spectacular poetry of um, something being amazing and kind of wow, it's very wow. So I'll just put that out there uh, as a way of thinking through some thoughts around how conventions are accepted, um, what we do with them, how, how to write. All, you know, the provocation being is how do you write without thinking like a consumer and, uh, when um, so much of culture has conditioned people to think of themselves as consumers only. So how do you write something that transcends that and that is not merely consumerist? Which is why I think the, the, you know, the kind of thumbs up, thumbs down, like, dislike, I like that, I didn't like it, that kind of response. Surface, maybe a surface response. Sometimes pointing to a deeper uh, connection or disconnection with the work, but often just a surface, a surface response because it's a consumerist response. Hi, you have three things and you're going to eat them. Do you like it? <laughs> right? Like it's a kind of a quick hit. Uh, and I think what Tarkovsky is getting at is that to make art is not a quick hit. It actually means to really, you know, to play the long games. Uh, the long game is a harder game to play, right? And um, the late Robert Holman, playwright, talks about wanting to write work that would last at least 20 years, if we're lucky, right? Um, at least to have that aim. And I think that Tarkovsky is getting at a similar thing in talking about how to write for the screen, is that you're aiming for something that transcends a consumerist uh, uh, consumerist easy easily consumable approach, um, something that, that can actually open up the heart or open up the soul to something else. Um, and I think that that's, a, that's where real change happens, uh, uh, even if the world doesn't always catch up with it quite. But um, if you're looking for real change, that's, that's, the key, that's one of the keys is to actually figure out, is there a space for the soul to open? Is there a space that is not dogma, but that is something else? That is something else that is um, illuminating, um, pure, radiant, complex, ambiguous, uh, primal force about what, is what does human existence mean, right? Uh, in my play, Red Bike, I talk about a character that says, you know, we're, we're put on this earth to learn how to live and learn how to die. And, you know, I will say that as, as humans, we, we tend to, I think, more than most other creatures on the earth, um, uh, kind of not learn our lessons very well. 
Uh, you know, and so, so and I think art is a way, you know, when people talk about art and teaching, I think that those are the lesson, the lesson of art. It's like, how could you, how could you learn how to live? How do you learn how to die? And then you're also sometimes looking at characters, if you're working with character, and characters that don't, that, that don't, that don't understand those lessons. And so that in itself is a lesson, right? It's sort of like, oh my God, these people that I'm watching in this story, in this event, have no idea how to live their lives. And the audience, if they're, if they're sensitive and awake, will be like, oh, you know, uh, those, those people, those characters I'm seeing, they've got it wrong, right? They, they've messed it up, right? They've messed up like, with the, crucial, uh, the crucial pact that we have uh, when we're born into the world and whatever the circumstances are and they're unique to each person still at the core is how do you learn how to live and how do you learn how to die and that that's the teaching process and that art can be a function of that process it can be it can help along the way uh, to facilitate that process um, and to circle back to Tarkovsky, in Tarkovsky's case, that process is illuminated through a connection to consciousness and opening up to a larger sense of the possibilities of the world. So that's my lecture. Thanks for listening. <laughs>